Hi, I'm Alex Palmer, and this is the Black Dog Cast, a no bullshit look at the world of mental health as I navigate my way through depression and seek out various therapies, supplements, drugs, lifestyle hacks, and more. It's always been my aim in this podcast to try and explain the world of mental health better and to reduce the stigma that surrounds it. For most people, their first stop on the road to getting help for a mental health issue is some form of behavioral therapy. But until we've done it, most of us know very little about the subject of therapy and how it works. So to answer this question, I thought the best person to ask would be my own therapist, Dr. Douglas Cole. I'm not sure we really cracked the question of how therapy works in an hour's podcast, but we do cover a wide range of topics in this interview from different modalities of therapy, how to get the most out of your therapy sessions, and why being a good therapist is a bit like being a jazz musician. So Doug, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks. <laughs> this is um, this is a little bit different to our normal interactions, our normal weekly interaction, isn't it? Right, right. <laughs> um, so I guess we are. This is not a uh, this is not a therapy session. This is a, this is a, a a podcast where I get to quiz you instead of you asking me <laughs> questions for a change. All right. Okay. Um, look, I got a lot of questions all about therapy, uh, which I think. Um, uh, you know, part of the reason for starting this podcast is to sort of, um, you know, blow out some of the taboos around mental health and around uh, particularly, you know, men's mental health. And a lot of it is just sort of using the experiences that, that um, you know, I've gone through and the help that I've gone out and sought to sort of um, tell other people about them so that, so that mm-hmm. you know, that the, the subject is, is a bit more well-known and, and, and not, so, um, not so difficult to talk about. But anyway... Why don't you um, tell us a little bit about kind of what you do as a therapist and who you are and what your, you know, how, how you ended up doing this, what your route was to become a therapist? Okay. Well, um, started out as a physics major, got through quantum mechanics and relativity and decided that wasn't the coolest thing. So, <laughs> so then I switched to neurobiology, got bachelor's and master's degrees in psychobiology, UC Santa Cruz, UC Irvine, University of California. Um, and then I was in a I was in a PhD program. It was all paid for, National Institute of Mental Health. But I realized if I finished that, I would have to take apart cat brains for a living, you know, as a neurobiologist, and I didn't want to do that. So um, I switched, and for 20 years or more, I actually got trained in a thing called Rolfing by Ida Rolf, who's a lady that started it. Mm-hmm. And worked as a body therapist for decades. Um, and, you know, learned how to interact with people that way. Um, and then eventually got bored with that and um, decided, oh, well, why don't I just go get a PhD in clinical psychology? So I did that, got master's and in, in, uh, PhD in clinical psych. And then because, and I was doing it for a while, and then I kind of got a little bored with that. And then I went, well, you know, I... I have all this neurobiology background. So then I I went to a conference and this guy, Elkanon Goldberg, was speaking. And I went, well, now there's a guy that actually knows what he's talking about. And it turns out he was, Alexander Luria was the the man of the 20th century for neurobiology. He was in, in uh, Russia, in Moscow. And Goldberg was his um, his last big student. Except that Goldberg was Jewish and he didn't want to join the Communist Party. And in order to have a career there, that's what he'd have to do. So 
<laughs> he, uh, he, he was inches away from the PhD and he quit. He told, he told Laurie what he was up to and he quit and became a taxi driver <laughs> and uh, was a taxi driver for a year. And finally, the, the, the central party figured he was useless. So they let him go, and he came to New York and immediately finished the PhD, and has been one of the world's best ever since. Um, so I flew for every month for two years out and did a, a, a training with him. There was, I think, five or six of us, and um, got trained in that. So my practice, but the flip side of that is that when I was do, going through my my uh, PhD program, I had two mentors, and well, three actually. One was the woman who uh, they the two women were both psychoanalysts. One was the one who taught the grad students at Harvard how to do therapy at Mass General Hospital, and the other one was um, the president of the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute. Um, so they actually, you know, each had been over forty years as analysts. They really knew what they were talking about. And the third one was this guy Charles Schwarzbeck, who was with Margaret Mahler. Uh, at in Topeka at the Menninger Institute, and that's where they did all the research on infant psycho psychological development. And um, so he was really an expert in that. So you know, I learned from those guys uh, in terms of doing therapy and stuff. And and what would you um, how do you describe the type of therapy that you do? Because there's a lot of different modalities out there. There's a lot of different acronyms. Like where where does where does your particular methodology sit amongst all of those well there's there's a bit of a misnomer in that uh, or misunderstanding um a lot of people most people at the master's level most virtually all counselors work at the level of techniques and that's not what i do um because in psychoanalysis i mean it's you know it's over 100 years old and it's, you know, just you could fill a library with with the books on the theory of how the mind works. Mm-hmm. And so psychoanalysis or psychodynamic psychotherapy, psychoanalysis mostly works with the unconscious uh, and psychodynamic psychotherapy works more with the ego and, and more of the preconscious and consciousness. So they're slightly different. The techniques are different in terms of therapy but you know the the difference is to have a model of how how it works and then you decide what to do as a therapist on the fly because you've got you've got this whole model of how the mind works so you know all of the territory and you can track where somebody is and you can it's like it's like, you know, psychic GPS. You can, you can <laughs> figure out exactly where they are, and then you, your job is to figure out, okay, what's the path out of that? Um, as opposed to, well, I've got a workbook, and so we're going to do this exercise, and then you do that and come back, and then we'll do the next one. Or, you know, well, I got trained in this, so if I follow these steps, then that's going to help the person. That may be true, but it's not the same as seeing the person for who they are. Yeah. Um, and so psycho, psychoanalytic uh, or psychodynamic psychotherapy works with a model like that. Existential psychotherapy, existential and phenomenological, has a, has a, a different model, but it's also very interesting. Um, and, um, you know, 
Cognitive behavioral, which is a much of a latecomer, and from a theoretical point of view, um, it has ideas, um, but <laughs> I mean, the biggest thing about cognitive behavioral is it doesn't really believe in the mind. I mean, <laughs> you know, there, there's there's cognitive, which is just how the brain works, and behavioral, which is B.F. Skinner, you know, and that there's no mind at all. It's just it's just. You, you, you know, you're, you're behaving and you think you're thinking, but you're not really, you just, that's an illusion. And that actually, that is what modern psychologists, all they've been able to come with and up with in terms of trying to bridge between mind and the brain, because there's no way to, to, to that we know of to, to explain from a, from a neurochemical point of view, where does the mind come from? You, um, I think you you described cognitive behavioral therapy in slightly different terms to me once before, didn't you? Do you remember that? Well, I you, you said to it was like it clean, you said it was you know, like white bread or something. <laughs> yeah, right, white bread therapy, right? So, do you? I mean, there's obviously a lot of people out there that make their living in in um, in using these different techniques, whether it's, you know, and, and there's, there's all these different acronyms like CBT and DBT and ACT and, and it's BFD. Uh, it, right. <laughs> are they, they obviously work for some people, right? Um, they're just, they're just different to different, um, therapists have different approaches. Um, do you think there's some validity in them or, 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 or not at all? No, it's not that there's not there's not it's not that there's no um, validity in the technique, mm -hmm. um, but the you know the adage is if all you've got to hammer the whole world looks like a nail, right? So so, so those so techniques people work. With EMDR, you know, um, they see everybody is suffering from trauma, yeah. and anything that comes in, they do their technique on it. Just hang on. Can you just clarify what EMDR is? Uh, I I can't remember what the acronym or what I, just, movement desensitization. Okay, retraining or something like that. I don't know. Um, but or or you know, um, DBT dialectic dialectical behavioral therapy. That's a that's a new one. Everybody loves. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing wrong with the technique, but you know if you. If you were going to have somebody build a house, do you want to do you want to have somebody who who's got a manual and it says, okay, in, you know, nail this board to that board, and then and then go to the next one, or do you want a master carpenter that can you know that just knows from the bottom up exactly what to do? Yeah, and it's the difference between having a model or having a technique. Yeah. you know, mostly I don't use techniques. There's a few techniques like systematic desensitization for phobias works. So I use that. But it's a little it's a, it's a little wrench in my toolbox. 99% of the time I I'm not using a technique. And the and the thought there is that look, um, I'm as smart as the next guy. My training was excellent. Why would I take and somebody else made up a technique, right? Mhm. Mm but they were they don't have the person that I have in front of them and and if I'm as smart as they are why can't I use my training to figure out what to do here and now rather than you know pull their technique out and follow their 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 steps it doesn't make any sense because yeah. they don't know who I have right now
Do you but think- if you don't have if you don't have the model, if you don't have that some kind of you know whatever model it is, if you don't have that, and if that model doesn't isn't good enough at explaining exactly, you know, I like that idea. I just made it up of that you know psychic GPS. Mm-hmm. If you can't tell through your model where that person is and where the pathway is out of where they are, then you're going to have to use techniques. Mm-hmm. But I'm not interested in that. You know, yeah, it's not what I want to do. Do you, I think one of the, you know, one of the hardest things when somebody is looking for a therapist is navigating all of these different modalities, right? And it, and it like how. How do you think people can can approach this if they decided they you know they need to go down the route of of having therapy and I don't know you start you know looking up different therapists and it sort of says that they're you know where they trained and what their specialities are and most most people who are who are coming to therapy don't really know much about this sort of stuff right I've probably mm-hmm. been through like four or five or six different therapists mm-hmm. I'm probably quite well informed compared to most people even I struggle like you 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 know you're looking through lists of therapists and it says oh somebody's a specialist in CBT and somebody's a specialist in family systems or whatever like how, like it's really hard to navigate isn't it how, how can people get how do, how do they how do they how do you manage that right right um, well, the first thing to know is that years and years of research, they've tried over and over and over again to, to figure out, um, you know, which therapy works best. And, you know, and the cognitive behaviorists in particular are, are hugely big on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, that and the reason for that is that you can, you can operationalize cognitive behavioral therapy. You can say, okay, when you see this, you take these steps and that gets you to the end results, okay? Um, but that doesn't work for psychoanalysis because it's much more open-ended. What they find when you do the research is it doesn't make any difference. What makes a difference is not the modality as much as, you know, is the therapist, is the therapist skilled you know, yeah. the more the, the more skilled, the, the longer the therapy. You know, look, if somebody's a crappy therapist, um, they're not going to be that successful. So they're probably not going to be doing it for 20 or 30 years. <laughs> so, or they might, but, you know, they, they, they tend to wash out. So if you've got somebody who's been doing it longer, they know the lay of the land better. Mm-hmm. The, but so, so, so experience is important. But the most important thing is, are you simpatico with this person? Mm-hmm. It's more... Do you connect well with the person? Now, that said, there's lots of counselors that, that, that see people for ages, and they're great friends with them, but then nothing ever really happens because they, they get along well with them. But So you have to have the therapist um, know what they're doing and, and take seriously what they're trying to do. One of the, 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 the person that I worked with who taught grad students from Harvard um, – she had a bunch of, of, of adages that she'd say, and one of them is, good therapy happens at the highest tolerable level of anxiety, okay? Mm-hmm. So, if, if you're, as a patient, if your feet aren't getting held to the fire, it's probably not happening. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're not feeling uncomfortable, uncomfortable yeah. from time to time, it's, it's, it's not working, you know? Yeah. Now, the, 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 the flip side of that is more subtle. 
which is that includes a therapist as well. So, you know, if the therapist isn't comfortable going into certain kinds of material, then mm-hmm. they will steer away from that and that will limit the success of the therapy. Or if they're if they're not comfortable saying working with somebody who's psychotic, well then they <laughs> had a lady, she was a she was a master's level counselor, social worker, and a, a patient came to her and said, um, well, I know something's wrong because I'm living in this apartment complex and I looked out today at the swimming pool and there was alligators coming out of it. <laughs> and the therapist freaked out. She said, well, you better go online and Google that you know, and see what that's about. And then she referred her to me. So, so, you know, in other words, the therapist has to be also has to be comfortable enough to, to handle whatever the patient could come up with. And, and I talk with patients about this who've seen other people. And, and they can tell, the patient can sense when their material is making the therapist uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And they will consciously or unconsciously steer away from that. And, and that's not helpful. You know, that's, that's not where it needs to go. It needs to go exactly there, you know? Yeah. So there's, there, I mean, there's, I guess... It's a bit like dating, right? I think trying to trying to find a good therapist because mm-hmm. there seems to just be a large amount of trial and error in it, and you have to you have to talk to and meet a, a, a bunch of different practitioners to find one that works for you. And you might need to go through several, you know, working a- actively working with several different therapists to find one that you you you, you know that's that's eventually the right one. I mean, do you, do you find well, that when patients get to you, have they have they typically been through several therapists um, already, or, or are they brand new? Mostly not. Yeah. But you know, I've been around in this area for a long time. So somebody told me years ago that the word on the street was, "Don't go to see this guy unless you're really willing to work because he's gonna he'll crucify." This guy you. being you, me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but what that gets to is important, which is that lots of people, if you, you look in the phone book, you look online, people, you know, have this laundry list of all the things they're specialists in. Mm-hmm. And and you're supposed to you know, pick and choose and and that's supposed to inform you, but it doesn't. That's just their marketing, you know. Um, yeah, but I don't think it's even very it's not very effective marketing, really. No. I mean it no. it has very little bearing on on how good a therapist that person is. And that's why, like, right. personally, I think it's a bit of a broken model because right. there, there just needs to be a better way of connecting clients with therapists, I mm-hmm. think. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know what that is. It's, it's, a, well, it's a tough one. I would say that probably well, I, 85, 90% at least of the people I see, um, it's on personal referral. Yeah. Somebody says, "Look, I I I know this guy, or I've seen that I've worked with him, or I know my my daughter worked with him, or something." And so it's all it's all word of mouth. Yeah, um, and you know, word of mouth gets around. So the the other way as well. You know, I had <laughs> I had a um, a lawyer, I guess it was, was talking about a a, a um, psychologist we knew that does evaluations, and he said, "You know, have you ever seen one that was useful?" I said, "No." He says, "Me neither." You know, so, so, you know, if you're in an area for a while, you get a reputation for what, are, what you do. And, 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 and I'm sure there's people that don't come to me because, you know, um, they don't want to work that hard. Yeah. 
Um, no, that's fine. You know, that's because that, that, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to have to try to hold hold back. You know. Yeah. Um. Going back a stage, what? How? How, how does somebody know that they need to go to therapy in the first place? Do you, are, are there when sort the of alligators common... are coming out of the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> does it does it vary w- with everybody? Are there sort of common signs that people can look out for and, no, and be like, no, because you know? because people are so diverse. I mean, you know, I see. I mean, one lady came in and was com- almost completely incoherent. And turns out she was schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. So you know, I mean, and, and she—I mean, she really looked like something out of a, a B-grade horror movie. I mean, you know, <laughs> she really was out there. Um, and and she she drank so many soft drinks that her teeth had all broken off, and all she had was fangs. You know, it was it was it was really scary. Or you know, a mom calls me up, and and you know, her kid is is bouncing off the walls. Um, I mean, there's so many different ways that people can have problems. You know, there's depression, there's there's um, bipolar, there's phobias, there's, and it, it, and it varies from just kind of mildly dysfunctional, or there's attention deficit problems. Mm-hmm. There's um, the, the people with learning disabilities. Um, so there's no there's no um, you know. A key to unlock that it's like well if life isn't working and you keep trying and it keeps not working then you might want to try to figure out what's going on <laughs> do you basically. find off is it quite often that um somebody will come to therapy because they're prompted by somebody else so somebody close to them recognizes <laughs> that there's you know they've got an issue that they should really seek help with no, and my, they my and they encourage is, them my favorite is that the, the you know mom brings in with an adolescent boy or girl and they, they talk about it, you know, and then finally I ask the parent to leave. And the first question is, okay, now what's really going on? You know? Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I mean, people get drug in all the time. Or, you know, sometimes, you know, guys will come in and, okay, other than what your wife wants changed, <laughs> what do we need to work on here? So, yeah, I mean, people get sent to me. But mostly yeah. not. Actually, I, I, I say that, and I've had that happen. Mostly not. In fact, most teenagers are, once we connect, are glad. I mean, I did an evaluation on a girl and um, finished the evaluation, gave my recommendations. They went off, tried to do get some psychiatric help. She was somewhat schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be a nightmare. Mom called and said, what do we do? And I said, well, you know, I mean, I do therapy if she wants. So just before this meeting, I was, I called her up and said, you know, your mom says we ought to do therapy. She was overjoyed. She went, oh, that's so cool, you know, so. So you, you work with all different types of, of sort of different patients, different ages, different conditions, right? True. Um, do you find that, um, and, and just remind me, how, you've been doing this quite a long time. How many years have you been a therapist? Uh, 25 years. 25. Over those 25 years, have you seen the landscape change a great deal? Are there conditions that you you know didn't see so much 25 years ago that now you're seeing more? Is it, is it, is it, is it changed a great deal? Well, what's changed more is the, is the payment model, which <laughs> in itself, right. you know, selects. Um, 
who, who gets to come in and who doesn't. And this is the payment model you mean working through insurance companies insurance here in the Insurance companies yeah. or, or Medicare, you know, whatever there is, Oregon Health Plan. Yeah. Um, the, the one that was sort of different, um, and I guess in part it's just that I got better at it, um, uh, there's, there's a, a subpopulation of kids that nobody can figure out. Um, and I finally, you know, I've sort of been for a long time, the, the, um, that old thing, you know, Harry Truman down on the, on the corner of his desk at the White House, the buck stops here. I'm like where the buck stops often after the, you know, other people try and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen a fair number of, you know, eight, nine, ten years old that um, really it's like, what is going on? And when I really dug in and went, oh, shit, it looks like they're psychotic or pre-psychotic. And I asked my office person and said, that can't be right. You know, I'm seeing quite a few of these. Her answer was, you forget that that you're getting a, a, a selected population because these are the kids that nobody else can figure out. So right. I've seen more of that more recently. I don't think it really means that um, there's more psychotic kids now. Um, what I have seen is um, video game-induced dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a real serious issue. That um, I mean, the, the, the one before that, um, it turns out that um, when during adolescence, the nerves in the front of the cortex myelinate, this fatty sheath that, that wraps around the nerve and makes it more, more effective. It increases the transmission rate and effectiveness. And so adolescents, particularly young adolescents, are a little bit unguided missiles because they're living through their brain rewiring itself. So the connections are, they're not what they were, but they're not where they're going to be. You know, Me- so Meaning just what, what would happen naturally during puberty and Yeah, yeah, 13, 14, 15-year-olds are like unguided missiles. You know? Yeah, yeah. Which is welcome to middle school. <laughs> so um, They all need well, therapy, don't they? <laughs> it Well, no, what it turns out is that um, the smoking marijuana during that time appears to interfere with that process mm-hmm. so it's the only it's the only age at which it's not a good idea to use that because mm-hmm. the cannabinoids somehow are interfering with the myelination or the interconnection process we don't know the deals details of that yet but we do know that that's a problem so so that's a thing that we, you really need to to, be, to caution people about okay so Another thing that happens is these kids get, you know, starting at eight or nine now, totally engrossed in video gaming or just being online, you yeah. know, and um, they're, they're starting to be evidence that it actually changes the way the brain wires itself and the, the way the brain functions. So that I've had a number of people that were addicted to the point that they it's not that they exactly dropped out of college. It's just that they got so engrossed in doing the games that they forgot to go to classes, and and the and the college just kind of melted away, you know. 
And it's taken years to bring these people back, you know, to functionality. So and it's actually it's actually a serious problem. With um, do you classify that as an addiction? Is it treated the same way as somebody that might come to you with an alcohol or drug addiction, or, or is it different? Well, it's interesting. They actually have now um, inpatient programs like they have for for um, drugs and alcohol for recovery from video gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mostly for kids, but, you know, the adults as well. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in, in a way, the difference is that I think that the video thing actually impacts the brain more directly than, than drugs or alcohol. Really? Yeah. In a, huh. in a way that is, I think it's easier to bring back an alcoholic than somebody who's, who's, who's addicted to gaming. Wow, I had no idea it was that it was that uh, that serious. Yeah, no they they did a really interesting thing where they took some kids that were had never gamed, and half of them they just left them that way, and the other half they they had them play an hour or two a day for two weeks, mm-hmm. and at the end of two weeks they could see differences in the brain functioning of the kids that were starting to game. Just in two weeks. In two weeks, and that's wow. only up to two hours a day. Yeah. Some of the, you know, well, I have kids that are eight, ten hours a day. As a as a as a side note, I used to work in an advertising agency, and um, I, I I worked on a you know a sportswear client, and the team next door to us on the same floor worked on Xbox, <laughs> right. and it was this constant battle with the 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 account leads on the Xbox team having to ration the amount of video gaming time that, that, that their creatives could spend playing mm-hmm. Xbox. And it's in that situation, it's kind of tough because we were always taught, like, you, you need to know your client's product, right? You need to know it really right. well. Right. And so they had to, um, they, they weren't allowed to play video games between, like, you know, 10 and 5 or something because um, they had to do proper work. And then they could play video games outside of that. So they just end mm-hmm. up, you know, staying there late at night playing video games because they couldn't during the day. Right. Um, right. But, um, yeah. Right. Um, what about um, uh, the sort of things that y- you talked about, um, you know, people shouldn't be afraid of kind of um, being uncomfortable and, and, and doing the work when they come to see a therapist like you. Are there any other things that help people get the most out of uh, a client-therapist relationship? Well, I think that the most important thing is courage. Yeah. You know, willingness to um, look at whatever comes up. Yeah. And that varies a lot from person to person. Is that so, do, you, do you have to sort of... Um, tease that out of people or is it is it um no i mean that you can't i mean they either got it or they don't you know yeah um but no i mean the other thing is um honesty in terms of is this is it you know is this working do do i feel like i'm really changing or do i just like this spending time with this therapist person you know right because it's very easy i think i've I've had this in the past it's very easy for therapy to default to just having a chat a friendly chat with somebody once a week right right and that's right. um, that's easy for both sides to, to just fall oh, yeah. back to that situation, right? The therapist loves it because it's easy and they get paid once a week. And exactly. the client loves it because they're not being pushed to actually do anything uncomfortable. 
Um, it's even better than that because it, <laughs> because the therapist then gets paid indefinitely because nothing's changing because they're not yeah they're not they're not fixing the right. person that's right <laughs> so they don't get better so then they got to keep coming so and I know I have I know people in town here been yeah. see, seeing people for twenty years yeah you know and and they're just good friends now but they get paid for getting together well I guess that's good work you could say that's good work. If you if you if you can find it, but I don't like that. You know, yeah. I mean, I get nervous at the end of a session if I don't feel that we've turned something over. Yeah, I don't like it. You know, do you find that um, because you're pushing people to do harder work, and you know, you want them to be feeling uncomfortable slightly? You know, because they're doing hard work or, or at least challenged. At yeah. Least challenged. So, all right. Uncomfortable. Ch- challenged is a better word, a better word for it. Um, does that mean when people, you know, when you work with patients, it's for a defined period of time versus this, you know, ongoing, seeing somebody an hour a week for, you know, years on years on years. Well, you know, I, uh, when I was in my graduate program, I had a friend that was the head of the counseling department at SOU and he talked me into uh, working there part-time, a couple times a week. And I said, okay, but only if you give me the most severe cases because I can't stand whiners. And so I got, you know, schizophrenics and stuff. You said only um, give me the, the worst of your cases. Right. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and But they had a rule that you could, you, you only got, the patient only got six, six visits. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, uh, how about a deal? I said, if as long as my average is six visits, uh, is that okay? And he goes, yeah, we can go with that. So, you know, most of them, it was two or three sessions, and we, we got them straightened out and on their way. And then one woman, was she was schizophrenic, and I saw her every week for four years, and she graduated mm-hmm. with a degree and went off and got a great job. You know, so, so I don't work that way. You know, I mean, what I'm trying to do is get people through as quickly as possible with, with as good of a, uh, as good of results as possible and then move on. I mean, you know, I always say my, my job is to put myself out of business, except there's so many crazy people. There's, (laughs) 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 but, but, you know, the idea is to get it done and move on. Yeah. Yeah, it's um I I can I can see how it it's that must be a it's a challenging sort of ethical line for therapists even because it it, it would be very easy to just keep taking the insurance company's money and keep seeing a patient and 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 not um push them to not need to come back to therapy, right? Well, you know, actually that's really interesting. Um there's an art to it because you have to push hard enough to get results. Right. But, but not, not hard, hard enough, enough so they don't show off. up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I thought of it like that. So you're always walking that line of, you know, um, is this, you know, is this, is this at the highest tolerable level of anxiety and not over the top of it? Yeah. You know? And at the same time, is something going on? You yeah. Know? Are we, are we getting anything done? 
yeah, do you, do, uh, how easy is it to go too far with that to push people to push people too hard? Well, no, actually, usually the therapist's anxiety kicks in at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and they, you know, they, they pull back. Yeah. Um, but it varies from person to person, you know. Yeah. One of the, I guess, another question I've got, and just, you know, as, again, as I've, as I've read more about this and learned more about therapy, um, this idea of sort of, you know, coaching and prescribing help versus just listen like active listening and just you know just sort of reflecting the patient's thoughts like where where do you stand on that and the uh, you know the merits of each approach well you know a coach is not a therapist yeah so that's out to me that's outside the box mm -hmm. and you know if you want to do that fine but that's not what i do you know yeah uh, look in the state of oregon they, it actually it's it's in the it's not in the statutes it's in the administrative rules there's a difference there's a technical difference between counseling and therapy mm -hmm. counseling is giving advice and it assumes that the underlying structure of the person is going to stay the same you're just redirecting them you know to do it this way instead of that way and would you put um you know cbt in those types of modalities in the counseling bucket no, it's not. No. It's not so easy to do that. Okay. You know, it depends on who's doing it. Um, therapy is designed to change the underlying structure of the way the person operates. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a much uh, it's a much bigger commitment on the on the on the on the part of the patient and on the part of the therapist. Mm -hmm. You know, both have to agree that there's something more fundamental that needs to change here, and we're going to work together to make that happen. Yeah. Have we got time to get into how that actually works? Can, well, can no, I mean, it depends on, on who's doing it and how good they are at it. Now, you yeah. know, the, the active listening is interesting. That's, that's a spinoff of, of Carl Rogers and, and mm -hmm. humanistic. Um, and what that does is basically reflect back to the person, um, how they're experiencing the world that fringes upon the phenomenological approach and you can bring in the existential aspect to that so so here's here's the world that you're describing to me and are you okay with that you know um so you can you can you can put as much of an edge on that as you want or you can just leave it as as a tape loop you know <laughs> i mean you know just kind of mindlessly you know repeating back what the person said and i've had people that go yeah i mean i i know what i said why are you telling me again you know because there's a level of skill involved in that mm -hmm. like if if i reflect back to you if i was going to do that what i would what i would do would be to put an edge on it so you're saying da 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 da, da. is that what you really mean Mm -hmm. You know, because I, I would highlight where it didn't seem quite to make sense. As opposed to just say, well, oh, I hear that. I'm there's like a supportive way to do that. Oh, I hear that you're suffering that way. OK. Yeah. You know? yeah. Versus are you really OK with that? You know, mm -hmm. and then and then the existential element can come in as a part of the humanistic approach, which is um, are you OK with the fact that you chose that? Mm -hmm. You know, and the, are you aware that you can choose to do it differently? 
And are you okay with making the decision not to change that and yet, and, and therefore to live with your own suffering? Mm-hmm. Because that's easier for you than to confront it. Yeah. So you can see it. You, you see how you could, you can take how many, every many steps down the road you want to take with that. Yeah. How would you sum up the, the scientific explanation for what therapy does and why it works? It's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> listen, I was so, trained. Well, there, there is no scientific explanation. No, no, listen, I was, my, I, I actually, I started out in physics, like I said, went all the way through quantum mechanics, relativity. I have a bachelor's and master's degree in neurobiology. Mm-hmm. I have a second degree in mathematics. I understand what science is, okay? And psychology is an art. It's not mm-hmm. a science. And right. it's it's just bullshit to 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 want to make it a behavioral science is you know it's it's almost an oxymoron. But what it does is that it it legislates the mind out of existence. Explain what you mean by that. That 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 there's no look. There's no way for science to explain the mind. Right. There's no the science is about you know we can talk ad nauseum. I mean I. Understand a lot of the neuroanatomy, the functional anatomy of the of the human brain. We know that. Where's the mind? Is that underneath the pineal gland, or is it behind the occiput, or where is that hiding? You know, and what is it that makes the phenomenon of mind even even occur? And 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 it's been for 50, 60 years now. The answer to that has been no. The experience of mind is an epiphenomenon. That you think you're thinking, but what you're really doing is the mind is functioning, and and you know, but but how is it that thinking can uh, can affect behavior? Uh, nobody knows, you know. And so the scientists say, well, no, the mind is just uh, it's a, it's a thing that that seems to arise, but it doesn't really have any status. The Dalai Lama on the other side has said, no, actually, what you don't understand is that the entire universe, including yourself, is an epiphenomenon of mind. What, um, just clarify, epiphenomenon. Epiphenomenon means that, um, that it, it comes out of that, but it's, it's not really, uh, it looks like it's coming from that. So what the Dalai Lama is saying is what looks like solid matter, what looks like you as a person, is really an illusion. Just like, the mind, from the scientific point of view, the mind itself is an illusion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we get we're getting into some some deep stuff there. Um, well, no, but see, that's important. Yeah. It's really important because if you if you operationalize therapy, are you seeing the person, or are you just seeing a, a, an opportunity to apply your techniques? Right. So, I mean, I, I guess is it we shouldn't try and explain how therapy works exactly, but just trust the fact that it does? No, no, I don't think so. I think that, um, it, you know, it's interesting. A psychoanalysis uh, has, is, you know, I mean, a real psychoanalysis is four times a week, an hour, uh, uh, you know, each session. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, is very long, 
goes on for years and very very deep and and you know and and you know the person finds out things of them about themselves they had no clue because it's you know it, it unveils the unconscious very interesting process but you know these days there's no way to pay for it um so that's one level of investigation um and you know there's been people that have gotten tremendous benefit from that but it's it's just it's a huge it's a huge commitment yeah this um, is the sort of classic jungian freudian no, no, model classic no. freudian psychoanalysis freudian, okay well jungian, jungian yeah you could use the jungian as well one of the interesting things about that is that um, the cognitive behavioral, uh, which is the other major school, I would say, mm-hmm. has been um, phenomenally unsuccessful at treating personality disorders, borderline or you know, schizotypal, whatever, mm-hmm. um, whereas psychoanalysis has been able to do that. And the reason is that psychoanalysis goes so much deeper into the structure of the person. Yeah. Or, board, you know, the borderline's the best one, you know, and then, and then you know, um, DBT dialecto, uh, Marshall Lanahan up in Seattle, came up with an approach that sort of operationalizes a, a way to work with borderlines. I, I don't think it really, in fact, I've seen uh, a person who was one of her original guinea pigs and it's like it made this person function better, but it didn't really address the underlying problem. So, I mean, it's an interesting question. How deeply do you want to go to, to solve it? You know, it's like your house. If your house, um, if the foundation shifts a little bit and the doors aren't closing properly, well, you can you can shave down the door so it closes <laughs> right, you know. Yeah. Or, but because it, it's, it's a much bigger deal to put a shim under under where the where the stem wall meets the the framing, you could lift that up. Mm-hmm. But if it's a foundation, you have to dig under and, and lift the foundation itself. So which one of those are you going to do? Well, if you don't have the model that breaks down for you the difference between framing versus versus just the door versus you know the foundation, you mm-hmm. won't know where you know you'll just do whatever you can to get the damn door to close. Yeah, you know. If you have a, a deeper understanding using one of the one of the more comprehensive models, then you can reach in and make a more fundamental change. Some people don't want that. Just get rid of this fear and and I'm or, good. Or they don't know what they're looking for most of right. the time, right? I think that's right. that's probably the biggest. Um, it, yeah, it's the the this whole area is. I think it's very challenging from a patient's perspective in just navigating. Um, what is an extremely complicated environment and there's lots of different types of practitioners out there and modalities it's it's um there's got to be a better way of doing it i think i don't know what that is though well you know i mean it's in, in part it's my bias is that it's not really that it's that complex except that there's not that many will people willing to pay the dues to get to a, you know, a really high level of proficiency. Yeah. I've seen it over and over again. Look, master's is two to three years. The average doctorate uh, program is seven years. Yeah. So who's willing to pay that extra dues? And then there's the postdocs, you know, if you want to get good in a particular area. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then, and then, you know, my, my original, my first clinical supervisor outside of my graduate program was this guy, Lars Lofgren, who was living in talent at the time. He was from Sweden. He was a training psychoanalyst, retired, had been in charge of a training institute in Massachusetts, but at that level was still went and, 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 and studied with this guy Kohut in Chicago because he was looking to deepen his understanding. So now that's somebody who's willing to pay dues. You know, it's like somebody who is an NBA basketball player and is in the offseason is, is out there eight hours a day working on his technique, you know, working on his shots, working on his dribbling. That's a different kind of person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What, um, let's just deviate for a, a second. You talked about the Dalai Lama. I know you've had some exposure to dependent, sorry. Tibetan Buddhism, um, right. how how is I guess how has that sort of um, informed what you do as a therapist and influenced it? And are there, are there particular learnings that you've taken from that that you've brought into your practice? Well, I guess the bottom line is that um, the the at the deepest level of Buddhism is the notion that. Um, all of all of the phenomena we perceive are in fact illusory. It's like a they, they talk about it as this magic show, where mm-hmm. and and that includes matter. I mean, I met a guy uh, when I was in Tibet, this old you know yogi who who they when the Chinese arrested him, they put manacles on him and they kept falling off, and it was like. You know, they said, you know, Rimshay, you have to stop doing that. He said, well, they hurt my wrists. So he was just, he was becoming, what was happening, his body was becoming momentarily transparent. And they just fell through. And later they put him in prison. And um, in the winter, he kept showing, out, showing up on the front steps of the prison. He was walking through the wall. He, was, he said, I'm not running away. I'm just warming up. It's too cold in there. So, so. My point is that that's somebody who has at a, who's at a level of achievement where he un, he perceives the illusory nature of what we see as solid phenomena. The fact is, um, I've got it somewhere. I printed it out. Uh, uh, Max Planck, you know, one of the one of the innovators of quantum mechanics, said, "Look, all of all of the, what we see as matter is not because it's." It's 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 really probabilistic positions of electrons in these particles that themselves are made up of subparticles that are themselves made up of God knows what. And he said that the only thing that he can think of that holds that together, there's a mind on top of that that's that's organizing all of that. And that's what and that's kind of what Tibetan Buddhism is saying. So the way this comes around is in the back of my mind, there's always the notion, yes. So all the suffering, all the people we see, the you know, all their struggle, what they're struggling with, is the play of their own illusion, you know. So it and it's interesting. What it enables me to do is to work with the more severe people without without getting too upset by it. I mean, a lot of people can't do that because it's so it's so wrenching. To see where they're suffering, yeah. For me to see, well, okay, yes, you're, you're, you know, that's very intense, but it's not, 
it's not in itself real. And so, and that helps me to guide them out of that because I don't get, I don't get enmeshed in that. It brings up a question I've often had about as a therapist, you deal with some quite difficult situations right. all day, every day, right? Mm-hmm. People are mm-hmm. coming to you with, with problems and, and, and in, in many cases, quite serious emotional problems. Mm-hmm. And just from a personal perspective, how you, you know, how do you manage that when you go home at the end of the day, sort of switching off and, and, and not, you know, <laughs> it's, thinking it's about it all thing. the time. The, the, um, the best way I know to express that, it was way back y- years and years ago when I was getting trained in rolfing. Um, you know, they had three um, of these um, tables and people working on everybody. And, and, you know, there's a lot of toxicity that comes out of people's bodies when you do that. And I was the only one that I didn't have much money when I was doing it. So the other students were going off and going out to lunch. And I was just sitting there. I had to bring my own sandwich and just sit in the corner and eat it. Um, and they came back and I was sitting in the corner and they said, how can you possibly sit there and, and eat with all this toxicity in the room? And the guy that was assisting Ida goes, you guys can't see it. He said, he's got this, he's got, he's in a bubble and all that <laughs> stuff is just going right over the top of him, you know? And I don't know, I can't explain it except that, um, there's a Teflon aspect that I would say once in a year, maybe once every other year, somebody comes through and some of, some aspect of their suffering really hits me. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, when I walk out the door, you know, I'm, you know, thinking about dinner. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that, I'd never thought about it like that, but that's an amazing skill to have, isn't it? To be able to, to, to be... Um, present and 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 empathetic mm-hmm. with people in a therapy situation, and let it kind of bounce off you, so that you can go home and just think about what you're having for dinner. Yeah, and it's it's a part of it is getting it that it's their problem, not mine, and it doesn't help them for me to take it on as my problem. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um. What about um? We hear a lot of talk on the news and stuff these days that, you know, there's a mental health epidemic and, and you know, cases of depression are booming and all sorts of other um, um, mental health conditions, especially with COVID. Um, clearly, there's a greater need for therapists, right? Therapy is quite a time-consuming, labor-intensive model. How, like, how do we reconcile those two things? Is there a way we can scale therapy to help these people or or is it just a case of needing more therapists no i don't i don't i don't actually agree with any of that what i what i see is that what we have is a highly dysfunctional culture a highly dysfunctional you know i mean some my favorite quote is somebody asked mahatma gandhi at what point what he thought about western civilization Mm -hmm. and his response was he thought it would be a good idea (laughs) um and I'm quite serious that, you know, when COVID first hit and everything shut down, my hope was not that we would get back to normal because normal is so dysfunctional. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, I think I honestly believe that that the dysfunction is not in the people. It's in the people being thrown into the situations that are impossible. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. And that, you know, that you have people worth hundreds of billions of dollars and, and then 
millions of people that, that can hardly eat. Mm-hmm. That's that's not that's not a that's not a human way to live. So you know, if we took better care of each other and 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 you could somehow annihilate greed or at least or at least you know agree that it's not okay um, for for people to assume that, you know assimilate that kind of wealth and that kind of power and control over other people. Yeah. Um, then, then I think that a lot of this would go away. So I, you know, I, I don't think the answer is to create more therapists to teach people how to live in a dysfunctional society. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hadn't thought about it like that. It's, um, it's kind of, a yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a bandaid for a wound that, we should be going back to the source and figuring right. out what, what, like, why does society have that wound in the first place, right? Right. Now, now that said, you know, given that I work on such a wide variety of people, people with attention deficit problems, that's real. That's a neurological problem. Right. People yeah. with schizophrenia, that's a neurological problem. Bipolar is a, a, a neurological issue. Mm-hmm. So those are things you need to be able to identify and, and work with them how to deal with it. Dementia is another one. Okay. Those are, those are things that, uh, you know, you need skilled people to know how to work with, but I would say 80% or more of what comes in for therapy is because the society isn't working and, and to throw it onto the therapist. Well, I guess it's a living, I suppose, you know, but it would be much better to change the underlying presupposition. The interesting thing is that, and this is something that, you know, got lost in the translation. I was actually back in the 60s. My preceptor of my dorm at UC Santa Cruz was a minister of education for the Black Panther Party. So my my education was, we had Black Panthers hanging out in the house, you know? Mm-hmm. And this whole Black Lives Matters, yeah, okay, yeah, whatever. But they had a they had a completely different. I mean, Angela Davis got fired from UCLA because she was a communist. Well, the Black Panther Party was saying, "Look, you know, on the one hand, we as Black people are being oppressed, and the system itself is oppressing everybody." So you know, and that's what made them more dangerous. That's why they got shot, and people with you know just saying you know Black Lives Matter aren't because Black Lives Matter isn't isn't questioning the under the underpinning problems that the society is structured on in the first place. So you know it's a very you know and then you know how many therapists are willing to take that on? <laughs> um, well, not many because it will put them out of a job. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but that's supposed that's what you know, if that, that's what we are supposedly wanting to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I, I mean a lot of it comes down to sort of um tangible things that people can do, right? And I think, you know, it's it's easy for you and I to sit here and, and look at the societal problems that cause all of these mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um it's much harder for individuals to think about things that they can actually tangible things that people can do to impact that. So we default to, to the individual, right? Like I have a problem with my mental health. And so I'm going to go and get help for that problem. Right. Right. And, and yet, I mean, one of the most interesting things from the pandemic is that it gave millions and millions of people a break. Yeah. And, 
And you see literally millions of people not willing to go back into the meat locker, you know, mm-hmm. not yeah. willing to be. And, and, you know, there was really interesting interviews with, with people on NPR about, you know, very different industries and how they just weren't going to do it. They don't know how they're going to make it, but they're not going to play that game anymore. Yeah. You know, so so there is an existential decision each person can make. Are you going to play the system or not? And are you, if not, are you going to try to find your way outside the edges of it? And it's, which is not to say it's easy, but it is to say that, look, the longest I ever had a job in my life, and I'm way past retirement age, was three months. <laughs> and I did that once, and I went, forget it. I, you know, I, somebody tells me to, to do something, and my response is, why would I do that? That seems stupid, you know? And, 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 and they take that personally because they're the boss, and I'm like, well, I'm just not going to do it, you know, because I don't, I don't, that's not what I want to do. So, so for me, it's been, there's been a decision all the way through not to play the game, you know, and to find, and it's not been easy, you know, it's never easy to, to do, to play it that way. Yeah. But existentially, I can, I can stand behind that. I guess we could talk, we could, we could go, go off on the whole existential piece in, in, far more detail than we have time for but do you find yourself helping people through those sorts of existential questions in 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 the in the context of of uh, the therapy that you do well yeah i mean what i mean it's not there's not that many people willing to take that on as, right. as patients but when they do yeah it resonates for me a lot and i'll work you know i'll really work with them to help clarify what what their existential you know, um, decisions are and how they define themselves by what they're willing to accept and what they're not willing to accept. Yeah. And, um, how that, how that defines them as a person. And, and how, how many of, uh, how many of those people is this purely about work? Do you think? Well, 80, I don't know the latest numbers, but a number of years ago, 85% of Americans hated their jobs. Right. I think it's still probably, similar (laughs) and you know i mean the other thing to remember about existentialism is that it came out of the ideas principally of jean-paul sartre jean-paul sartre was in the french underground and the 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 average lifetime of a person in the underground was about 18 months Mm -hmm. so people who joined the underground knew that they were risking their lives from day one so that wasn't, and that was his whole point. That was an existential decision that was based on their estimate of what's right and what's not right. This was um, talking about like the French resistance in, in World War II. In World yeah. War II, yeah, yeah, okay. Right. And so, and so, you know, so that's, so existential work is very foundational, you know, and a lot of people don't want to go there, but, but those who do, I, tip my hat to you know yeah you mean pe- uh, people want people don't want to go there from a therapist point of view or from a client or both well, either one yeah you know i mean you know as a therapist are you existentially okay continually taking money without without people changing can you live with that you know mm. and and for me that doesn't work you know so no literally any session that i'm doing if I don't get towards the last 10 minutes 
and feel like there's some step that's been made, I'm not, I'm not satisfied. Yeah. You know, um, because I feel like, you know, that's, that's my part of, of the agreement, you know, is to, is to show up and make something happen. Yeah. Not, you know, and it may be reflecting to the person how they've got themselves stuck. I mean, that's fine. You know, it's not like I have to magically transform them every time, but, you know, for them to t- send them home in a, in, in a greater awareness of their own self-imposed stuckness, mm-hmm. you know, and, and have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, you know, it's, it's, it's something we've talked about, right. And, and, and as, as, part of our sessions you've helped me with some of these existential questions mm-hmm. like and i and, and i've had some breakthroughs with that mm-hmm. i'll be honest i've got no idea how you do it <laughs> like <laughs> I, I i can't explain like what 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 did doug do in that session that you know a week later um this thought came up which somehow addressed some of these existential questions i was mm-hmm. having i mean mm-hmm. can 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 you explain it to me or is it well it would go back to what i said in the very beginning which is to understand to have a model that helps me understand the whole person mm-hmm. and i'm going to use that gps of the psyche thing because i think it's very important to know where this person is and once you see where they are you can see where they're stuck mm-hmm. okay and then you know, then that that's where it gets cool because then you're outside the box of the techniques. And so then it's like, okay, it's like it's like being a really good musician who's who's playing I don't people aren't aware of this, but Indian music, like sitar music, classical Indian music, there's there's a raga is a form but most of what happens within that is improvisation. So it's within the, within the box of that form. So three different players will so, play the same raga and it will sound quite different. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for a, as a therapist, it's like use your GPS to figure out where the person is. And then you have to use your skill as, as, a, as an improviser to figure out, okay, what's what's a clever way to to bring their awareness to that, or at least to plant the seed for that? And and you're right that there's no you can't you can't put that in a box. You can't put that in a manual, and that's why I I will not ever do that. You know, because it takes all of. If nothing else, it's like it's like having to play, you know, Western classical music. There is no room for that. Yeah. So you're more there like was, you're more like a jazz musician. Yeah, no, there was a uh, I can't remember who it was a really famous um, classical pianist was was and they had a this was on in, uh, on uh, PBS they were showing a rehearsal and the conductor's conducting away and and all of a sudden you see this horrible expression on the conductor's face and um, God I can't remember who it was was playing. It was a it was a Russian and he goes, um, Mr. So and so, he said, um, uh, measure one thirty eight, that's a C sharp, not a C. 
Um, and, you know, he's like totally embarrassed to have to tell this, you know, world-class musician that you played the wrong note. <laughs> and, and, the, and the piano player goes, right, right. Um, he said, but we need to play the music the way it's written. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. The way it's written, that's where you start from. And then you make the music from that point forward. So it's the difference between somebody that plays the notes the way they're written versus brings their own intelligence in. And that's, if, you, if you're going to do that, you have to have a model in the first place to know where you are. And then the, you know, look, Jerry Garcia used to practice eight to 10 hours a day. He said he'd sit down and start noodling and wake up eight hours later and went, oh, I guess I better <laughs> go get dinner, you know, just because he got so absorbed in it. If you put that much into it, then when you get yourself in a situation, your, your mind, your fingers knows what to do. But you have to be willing to make that commitment to that level of, of um, expertise. Yeah. And so that's why I say you can't do that with three years of training or two years of training because, you know, it's just, it doesn't work that way, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's an essential difference. But to answer your question, no, that's where it gets juicy is to, <laughs> is, is to, is to figure out where a person is and then, and, then, and then wait for the inspiration. What do you do here? You know, I, I, tell, I call that pulling the rabbit out of the hat, you know? And that's why I'm saying if I haven't got a rabbit out of the hat by within 10 minutes of the end, I'm like, oh, shit, you know, what are we doing here? Yeah, well, I don't, I, I don't know how you did it, but um, <laughs> it, that, that one definitely works. Um, look, I've got one other, one other thing I want to talk about before we wrap this up. Um, and we've, you know, we've touched on this um, in some of our sessions, and it's obviously a hot topic here in Oregon because they legalized, um, well, they, they legalized the exploration of how psilocybin can be used in a therapeutic setting. Um, mm. like, wh where, like, what are your thoughts on it? Are you excited about it? Is it something that you think, um, do you see a big benefit in, in the way that's going um, here in Oregon? No. No? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> um, I was familiar with the literature. Robin Card Harris was the one that, that really, Imperial College of London was yeah. the one that kind of launched that um, experiment and you know the first results were quite good um, and I actually met him and talked with him when he was up in Portland um, but then there was been a follow-up study just recently that didn't get as good of results so it's you know it's a little bit um, uncertain but the problem is the underlying problem is and and I have to say that the Oregon measure 109 is totally bogus Mm -hmm. It was written by people that don't know their butt from a hole in the ground about <laughs> about real psychedelic psychotherapy, which was which was developed by Stanislav Grof back in the '60s with yep. LSD, and um, and and Maps, who's uh, the organization that's that's pioneered using MDMA to treat post traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. they, they, they were very much, in fact, they're very close contact with Stanislav Grof now, okay? So they used his model. And the model is a full dose of the psychedelic substance, and it's in a very structured situation with a musical sound 
background and two therapists who know how to not be guides, but allies yeah. in that process. And, and the way that the Oregon, legis- the Oregon bill was passed through is completely oblivious to that. All you need to do to be a, quote, therapist is a high school diploma and 21 years old, which, you know, when I was 21 with a college diploma, I was an unguided missile, you know, and it was like, <laughs> you know, the idea of me being in charge of something like that, is re- it's absurd. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's irresponsible and it's, it's going to crash and burn. People are going to get hurt. Right. Because it will just open up um, sort of unstructured, irresponsible yeah. use of it in a, right. in a sort of, quote, therapeutic setting. Right. Right. And what it's going to do is, is just it, – it's, it's, in fact, I'm not sure if it was Roland Griffiths or Card Harris. I think it was Roland Griffiths that wrote an article about this. Because he was Griffiths was the one that brought psilocybin back with that uh, epic study he did about six years ago now mm-hmm. um, at at uh, Johns Hopkins. Yeah, and um, he wrote an article basically saying, "Are we going to screw it up again? Yeah, you know, are we not going to pay attention to the right way to do this and and let it go unfettered and and." you know, have bad things happen again and then lose the ability to do it. And looking at the, at the Oregon, at that bill, I think, yes, the answer is yes, we are. Yeah. You know, it's really irresponsible. Because the, the, the sort of, I don't don't know whether we want to call it the right way to do it, but, but what seems like the most reliable way to do this is, is in a more structured way with somebody that guides you with a, with a, defined set and setting and a mm-hmm. hero dose and all those sorts of things, right? Well, not only that, I mean, I, I can't stress enough how important the music is. Yeah. That the music helps with this destructuralization and restructuralization. Groff got that in the beginning. There's it, and, and Tim Leary understood this, you know, I mean, you know, set and setting, that was, you know, he, yeah. he was the one that, that, that figured that out. And those are things, you know, there was uh, over a thousand studies done before LSD was made illegal that really, that really, you know, pioneered some of this stuff. And that's, you know, it's just thrown out the window and you've got these unguided missiles that are going to screw it up again. Yeah. And it's really too bad. But so it goes, you know. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's definitely being in Oregon. A lot of people are excited about it, but uh, I can see how it could, um, it could very quickly become the wild west and and all sorts of people um i don't know it you, you saw an, a, a, an increase in you know weed-based tourism right people were traveling right. to to, to right, colorado right, right, and california right. i mean you you'll get the same thing there'll be like psilocybin-based tourism people coming to oregon to do a you know whatever um well s- some, okay, but- something that somebody's marketing that isn't um right and if you look at it um you know, um, Rick Doblin and, 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 and maps, the multi, um, di- uh, what is it? Multidisciplinary association for cultural, uh, for psychedelic studies. Um, they were very careful because now they're at, at approaching the end of phase three clinical trials through the FDA for the use of MDMA to treat PTSD. It mm-hmm. works. It works yeah. really well. 
If you look at the manual, it's like 70 pages or something like that. Very structured. This is the way you do it. This is, this is, you know, people have to be trained as to how to work with the people. People, and, and it has to have that structure to it. Okay. And now we've got people just, you know, figure it out. Here, all you need to do is set up a center and get somebody to do it, you know, and get the license. I mean, it's, it's completely um, irresponsible. Yeah. Well, it's it's a tricky subject, and I guess on the one hand, it's 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 encouraging that um, research is being done and this area is being pushed forward. But I guess with that comes a risk that you know, if it's not um, what do we want? If it's not legislated properly, right, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that it becomes the wild west and it backfires, and and then we end up with it being criminalized again down the road, right, right. right. Um, but um, yeah, we'll have to see how it all pans out. Um, all right, I think we should probably wrap this up, unless okay. there's anything that um, that you haven't had a chance to to, to say that you're you're uh, you you really want to. <laughs> <laughs> I was joking some the other day back in the '60s when I was really involved in radical politics. We always, when we were, you know, we we were bidding someone goodbye. We'd always say, "Yeah, and don't forget to smash the state." <laughs> <laughs> so we can leave it at that. There we go. Well, I'm 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 going back to London in a week, so I won't forget to smash the state. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Thanks, Doug. Okay. You take care. So that's it for this episode of the Black Dog Cast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a rating or review on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. More importantly, I'd encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and start a conversation about mental health. <laughs>